0: Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit today about uh, Harold Wilson's Labour government in Britain from 1964 to 1970 um, during um, the period that we tend to classically think of, and I I cringe to use the term, uh, the swinging 60s in Britain. Um, And we're going to look a little bit about the... um, the projection, the artifice of Wilson's government, and then the economic realities behind it. And that kind of explains why, by the end of the decade, really many of the supposed dreams of the 60s um, really have gone unrealised. So, the um, 1964 election saw the downfall of the Conservative government, which had been um, had four prime ministers. Um, Churchill, Eden, Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume of which Macmillan was by far the most successful and uh, 13 years of Conservative rule had seen uh, a dramatic transformation in uh, British society the Conservatives uh, adopted a a largely centre ground um, approach to um, politics, to society and to the economy Um, they uh, agreed with uh, labor that there should be a commitment to full employment in britain and that there should be a uh, a mixed economy a large proportion of it nationalized and so um the this is the the kind of the uh, the high point really the 50s and 60s the the high point of what was known as the the consensus era of british politics the for their part the labor party was uh, not dominated by the the left, and really the the extremes of the the left of the Labour Party only uh, really 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 manifest themselves in any uh, great um, uh, great sort of sense in the 1970s uh, under the likes of uh, Tony Benn. So um, you have a kind of a fairly um, a fairly broad consensus uh, economically and socially about uh, you know about Britain. But this is a, a fairly expensive consensus. Um, there are two huge spending commitments that both um, Conservative and Labour governments never really managed to successfully afford. The first spending commitment is the uh, the, the growing welfare state, but th- this uh, pales into insignificance Compared to the uh, vast amount spent on on defence and particularly uh, Britain's overseas um, uh, obligations and colonial possessions, even though Britain had lost India and um, through, uh, from the late 1950s onwards was in the business of decolonising in Africa, she still spent an awful lot, far more than she could afford, something like about 22% of gross national uh, product on um, military, uh, on maintaining an army in Germany as part of NATO, and also maintaining bases east of Suez, so places like Aden and Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, these, again, are huge, um, huge expensive uh, spending commitments, and ones which later on under Heath were seen as increasingly um, unjustifiable and unsustainable. When Wilson enters office, um, he appoints uh, James Callaghan as his Chancellor of the Exchequer and the two of them uncover a Tory horror story. Um, Reginald Maudling, the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, decided to go on something of a spending spree before the uh, 1964 election, um, believing that, um, um, that an injection of spending into the economy um, could kind of kickstart the economy. Um, there had been a problem, an ongoing problem throughout the 50s and early 60s of what was known as the stop-go, of uh, allowing um, the economy to boom as it naturally tended to do under such fortuitous conditions of world trade in the 1950s and 60s, and then when inflation started to tick up to unacceptable levels to turn on the interest rates and to slow down the economy and stop it. The uh, problem, the, the question of inflation in the 50s and 60s is not one that um, bothers governments of either stripe, particularly in that the overall objective that most British governments, um, up until really um, the Callaghan government um, of the last part of the 1970s onwards, up until then, all governments believed that it was... Okay, to tolerate a certain amount of inflation in return for full employment, and with unemployment for most of the sixties being uh, under one percent, under two percent, and um, that was, uh, you know, in in that view of things, in a commitment to full employment uh, sense, a successful policy. So the problem that Wilson has when he comes to office is that um, because of um, tor- um, conservative economic policies um, in the, under the previous government and a certain degree of recklessness, um, perhaps from a government that knew that the, the failure that um, being voted out was inevitable anyway, that there isn't the money to pay for the amount of social reform that Wilson has promised to honour Britain's uh, defence commitments uh, and to uh, keep the pound strong. Um, On the final issue of the value of the pound, this is something that was very dear to Wilson's heart. In 1924, um, Ramsay MacDonald, um, the first Labour Prime Minister, uh, was forced to devalue the pound um, and Labour was seen as the, the party of devaluation. And whilst devaluation is not a particularly um, bad idea, um, it actually allows exports um, to flow out far easier, and it's something that business um, really quite favours. The, um, the point about devaluation... And this is why, during the nineteen twenties, Winston Churchill puts the pound on the gold standard and keeps a constantly an artificially high value for the pound. Is it devalu- um, uh, devaluation tends to favour industry at the expense of uh, the, the finance of uh, the City of London, um, and it also um, is seen as a kind of a national retreat, a uh, an acceptance that the pound is no longer popular, or the pound is no longer a a currency that people wish to invest in. And that acceptance um, is almost almost like, you know, in cultural and political terms, an admittance of um, defeat and the decline of the the British economy. This is something that uh, Britain's political classes have found it very difficult to tolerate. And they've also. There's this accusation that the um, Labour is the party of devaluation, something that doesn't sit right in uh, the newspapers either and creates for Labour this aura of bad economic management. So it's not something that Wilson is happy to embrace at all. And the advice from the Treasury in 1964 when looking upon the books was that there are uh, a number of stark choices ahead. You either uh, slash your spending commitments, uh, and uh, let down the working class voters that have voted for more social reform, pensions, housing, that sort of thing. Uh, or you um, re- reduce the amount of overseas commitments that Britain has. Again, you present Britain with a uh, picture of being, or the Labour Party with a picture of being unpatriotic, um, willing to retreat in the face of the communists and Russia and the Cold War and all that sort of thing. Or you devalue. You have to take one of these unpalatable choices. And Wilson chooses to take none of these. And one of the things that characterises Wilson throughout his time in office and then his second period of office from seventy four onwards is a refusal to take hard choices. Um, The the, the consequences of um, the uh, refusal by Wilson to uh, accept You know, hard economic medicine, but actually, compared to what the country has to accept in the 1970s, it's comparatively minor. Um, Is a a gradual decline in the British economy and a gradual decline in um, British economic confidence throughout the 1960s. Many of the visions that wilson has for britain he talks about britain being transformed in the white heat of technology he talks about britain being um a a modern classless meritocracy this um, technocratic society that will be um you know built under kind of uh, uh modern architecture and technology all that sort of thing is unaffordable by the late 1960s um instead the um the kind of the visions that um wilson uh, projects in about 64 um become distinctly dystopian by the end of the, the end of the decade the um sense that um the uh, new towns that are being built that tower blocks that are being put up um that um educational changes are leading to a quite a kind of dark, chaotic society uh, is is prevalent for many people. Now, of course, this isn't exactly or even nearly the case that uh, Britain actually was in many ways a better place by the end of the 1960s. There had been uh, reforms to the law on um, uh, divorce, reforms to the law on abortion, uh, reforms to the law on... Uh, Uh, Capital punishment hanging had been ended, um, reforms to decriminalisation of homosexuality. Um, There had been the development of the open university. Um, By the end of the 1960s, more working class people than ever before were going to university. And there was more social mobility by the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s. Than than there had there had ever been or would ever be again, so there were some great things to be said about Wilson's um, Wilson's years, but the fact is that they become frighteningly unsustainable. And both uh, you know Heath and then Wilson again and then Callaghan all inherit the uh, the problems of the nineteen sixties. Not least of which is Northern Ireland, which is you know such a, a huge issue that I'll I'll focus on that another time. Um, The problem of Britain's trade unions and trade union uh, reform, again, is something that is is fudged by Wilson. Um, From the end of 1968, um, Barbara Castle is tasked with Wilson with the job of uh, reforming the trade unions and, and drafting trade union reform law. She spends much of December at the Sunningdale College um, in uh, Ascot, uh, with the civil servant, with her civil servants, uh, drafting up the In Place of Strife um, legislation, which had some fairly moderate uh, proposals, such as a cooling-off period um, and a uh, consultation uh, process before any more strikes took place. Um, the The problem that had been, of course, is that strike days had gradually increased throughout the fifties and sixties. Um, the problem with strikes in Britain was nowhere near as acute as in nearly all uh, of uh, Britain's other first world neighbours Britain had become become synonymous with strikes in the sixties and seventies but actually, if you look at the track record of Canada, australia, america uh, Italy, France, Belgium, and Germany. In all those countries, strikes are actually worse so um, part of the problem with uh, strikes and the trade unions is very much um, flammed up by the uh, the broadsheet and the tabloid press, particularly the times uh, but the um, proposals that uh, Barbara Castle puts forward to limit union powers to strike and to try to create some kind of reasonable balance between uh, the rights of workers and the needs of industry are sabotaged by uh, Jim Callahan, uh, who is a, uh, a, a you know, an ardent uh, union man through and through and whose power base is with the unions, which is ironic considering what they do to him from 1976 onwards. Um, and the Prime Minister, Wilson, is more than happy to listen to Callahan. Uh, in uh, as he sees uh, Car- Barbara Castle star in the ascendancy and sees her popularity uh, growing. His fear is of um, a minister who might be able to challenge him for the leadership. One of the um, things about um, Wilson, who was described by one of his cabinet as the Yorkshire Walter Mitty, um, is that he was extremely suspicious by um, the later 1960s and extremely paranoid of his cabinet colleagues and was happier in many ways to sabotage um, legislation or sabotage the people he worked with in a, in a bid to uh, preserve his own position. Um, I think eventually, sadly for Wilson, his own uh, career his and his own um, position become more important to him. And on the subject of things that were important to Wilson, I think another thing that's, that's true about Wilson is that he cannot be described um, even in the days when there was a kind of uh, a real spirit of um, socialism within the Labour Party, democratic socialism I don't think Wilson can be described as remotely socialist at all and certainly he didn't describe himself in those terms Um, he described himself uh, really as, as an arch pragmatist and he believed in doing what worked he was um probably an egalitarian he was in he believed that in social equality and fairness and had um sort of working class or perhaps you might say lower middle class roots but he was no um no ideologue in any way shape or form he was um extremely uh, patriotic, um, one might even say slightly insular and nationalist and wasn 't very um, very enthused by the idea of uh, joining the European economic community uh, instead, he um, was um, a, a royalist um, he believed in uh, perhaps more strong relationships with the Commonwealth. And was a kind of the left's answer really to uh, the uh, the like the, the Daily Mail Little Englander. Um he his attempts to portray himself as working class, um smoking a pipe, drinking a pint of bitter, and saying I think one of his famous quotes was he he preferred uh, tinned tin salmon to smoked salmon was born out partly uh, from a, a keen sense of how the winds were changing in the late nineteen in the late 1950s and the 1960s. The fact that, um, you, you know, working-class pop stars like the Beatles, a working-class actor like Sean Connery, and uh, working-class playwrights like John Osborne um, and Alan silito were incredibly popular, meant that by 1960, really... Um being working class was um you know, seen as incredibly progressive, incredibly um positive and um classless thing. And in part because the um uh, the government of the day was dominated by people like uh, Harold Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume. The the, um, the irony is that uh, both Macmillan and Hume did fairly good jobs of managing to kind of steer the ship of Britain throughout the nineteen fifties and, and early sixties, and much of the the prosperity that gave people the um, leisure time, the wealth in which to uh, dabble with ideas of classlessness, was in in part down to them. Um, so. Wilson was a, a great at adopting um things and images themes and images that sounded good that presented a kind of uh, a positive spin on things um the the substance of it all is um rather weaker and i think unfortunately the verdict i guess for me really is that what Wilson did was he put um, himself first um he was Um, The careerist whose um, ability to um, avoid the essential but unpleasant and to sabotage, again, essential but unpopular things like um, in place of strife meant that uh, much of what Wilson hoped to achieve didn't happen and that he stored up for future British governments a toxic legacy for the 1970s. Okay, so um, I hope that's useful. Um, There may be people out there doing British history. It's uh, very much uh, Flavour of the Month at the moment. Um, If so, stay tuned in the next week or so. I'm going to do a little bit more on um, Britain in the 60s and 70s. Um, And the uh, Explaining History book review is coming up shortly. Um, We've just launched uh, The Genocidal Century by Julia Routledge. Um, Download it. It's a great read. It gives you a brilliant overview in concise form of uh, 20th, 20th century genocide. Um, And two new titles that are on the way are Gina Bolter's After Mao and Tyrell Eskelson's The American Century. Um, So that's uh, the third part of our Century series. So uh, stay uh, stay in touch for those and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.